we've been talking about this idea, my near-death experiment, and how we can generate the kind of passion, the perspective shift, think about the things that matter most in life without having to have the tragedy of a near-death experience to get us there. Because the reality is, all of us, it's just a matter of time, all of us will one day end up in a box like that. Perhaps a more modern version than this kind of like tombstone-esque you know, box, but if you, you never miss an opportunity to reference one of the greatest movies of all time, right? Tombstone is... So we, we will end up in a thing like that. We, we will all die 100% mortality rate in this room. I don't want to be a buzzkill, but that's, the, that's just true. That's where we stand. And so the question is not whether or not you will die. The question is how will you live until this unknown time in the future when we all We'll go home to be with God. So what will you make of this life? And today we are talking about this idea of eulogy. You see that? If you pull out your outline, you see at the top of it, eulogy. And I spelled it Y-O-U. Do you see what I did there? Because there will be a time when you do die and someone will stand on a stage like this and they will share words about you. So what will they say? And they will put something in the paper, if there's still papers then, in an obituary. What will they write? And you'll have people that get up and share, and you'll have people that have to make a decision about what's on your tombstone, and what what do you think that that's going to be? And so we talk about these things, not because we're morbid, but because we want to leverage the reality of death to bring clarity and passion and purpose to our lives. I quoted this gal in this book here, Bronnie Ware. She's an Australian nurse who devoted herself to caring for people in their last weeks of life. So in their last weeks, when they know they were going to die, it was kind of like a hospice-type deal. She would meet with them. She would take care of them. That's how she was wired. That was in her DNA. She wanted to care for those people on their way out. And she journaled about that process, and she, she learned that the people that had regret, of the people, not everyone had regrets, but the people that did have regrets shared one primary regret in common, the number one regret that people had. They said, I wish I'd had the courage to live a full and true life myself. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life full and true to myself, not the life that others expected of me. The number one regret as people are winding down and looking back and reflecting on their life I wish that I had the courage to live a life full and true to myself, not the life that others expected of me. And then she goes on her own observation. She says, this was the most common regret of all. When people realize that their life was almost over and look back clearly on it, it's easy to see how many dreams have gone unfulfilled. Most people had not honored even half of their dreams and had to die knowing that it was due to choices they had made or not made. And I think, I think we understand that. I think we understand how that happens to people. I think we get that because maybe you're like me and you've grown up with people telling you, perhaps at different points in your life or at a younger age, that you have promise, that there's something in you, you have potential, there's greatness in you. And some of us are still kind of spinning our wheels and wondering when that's going to be true. When do we actually get to see that potential fulfilled? We're still wondering why our boss or our coworker or these people don't yet see that potential, that promise. They're not promoting us. They're not advancing us. 
Maybe you're like me, and when you graduated from college, you were just overwhelmed in the information age at all the possibilities of what you could do with your life. And you're still kind of spinning like, ah, am I doing the most important thing? Is this what I should be doing? Because there's infinite number of things that I can do. You just hop online, and it's just, it's just unfathomable. I, I, how do I focus? What do I, what are uniquely me, what should I be doing with my life? Some of us were told, either overtly flat out or just by the example that we saw, that we shouldn't shoot for anything big or specific or grandiose. Some of us were told that we should just kind of fly under the radar. Some of us were made to feel like we didn't really have a unique expression. And the people that risked things and put their heads up just got rocks thrown at them. People that kind of went out in front just got kicked from behind. So stay under the radar, just kind of, just kind of float by, just kind of play it safe. And then I think there's others of us who are still looking for that sport or that game or that activity where we can finally be picked first, you know, instead of last. We have that. We, we wonder, we ask this question, what does it look like for me to make the most of this life, to make the most of how I am wired, how God made me in the time that I have? And I think we feel this vulnerability, this verse here from James where it says that our lives are but a mist. It says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then is gone. You're like, thank you very little. I woke up late, but I woke up and I got here to church today and you tell me this good news. But it's true. You look at in light of all eternity, in light of all time and all humans that have ever lived, our lives are just this little thing. And we don't know if we go tomorrow or when that time is. And yet, at the very same time, you have this thing in you, you have this tension because you know that this is also true, what the psalmist David said in Psalm 139. He said, for, he's talking to God, he said, for you, God, you created me in my inmost being. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Notice how personal that is. You put me together, you designed me, you fashioned me in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Everything you make is amazing and awe-worthy, and you made me. Your works are wonderful. I know them full well. So pay attention to the tension. And the tension is this, that we're all the same on one hand, and yet we're totally unique on the other hand. On the one hand, we're all the same, that we're created by a designer God, we're created by God to, to reflect some piece, some sliver of his image. And we're designed to give him glory and lift him up and to be about him ultimately. And then at the same time, we're designed to do that, to express that uniquely, that not one of us is the same, that each of us have a specific way that we've been designed, we have different skills and experiences that we've acquired over life, and that we have a different destiny and future that he has in mind for us. But here's what happens. There are, there are times, there are people, there are those of us that we focus on one side or the other and don't live in that tension. There are those that focus on this side of just thinking, I'm just like everybody else. I'm not going to make a real difference. What am I going to do? What, am I ha- what do I have to offer? Well, I'm just a cog in the wheel. This is just how my life is. It was how my dad lived. It was how my grandpa lived. And I just do this thing, and it's fine. Those kind of people lack passion and lack focus and lack drive and lack vision for their life. There's insecurity involved in that. There's boredom involved in that. Then on the other side of the spectrum, you have... 
other people who only focus on the fact that I'm unique, I'm special, I'm designed for a specific purpose, there's this great destiny for me. And these types of people become self-absorbed, self-focused, and forget that we're all connected, that at a fundamental level, we were, we're all the same. We were designed by God to reflect him, bring him glory, connect with one another. These are the types of people that grew up just getting trophies for every single sport they played, whether they won or lost. And they grow up thinking, I deserve a trophy. I showed up today. Why don't I get promoted? Why don't you value me? Add value. What do you mean add value? I showed up. I'm here, you know. I'm special. I'm unique. There's a tension of both. That we're all the same, created by God as humans, children of God, to reflect him. And you will do that unlike anyone else that's ever lived. You will do that in a way that is completely unique to you based on how he has wired you, gifted you, equipped you, and the experiences in the life that he's given you thus far. We will live in that tension. And so the question for today is, how do you live and leave a legacy that benefits others who are just like you, but is also true to the way God designed you uniquely? How do we intentionally live and leave this legacy? How do we live a life that is honest and true to who God made us to be? And if we could sort that out, wouldn't it be better to decide today that we are going to live into that legacy than have regrets down the road wishing that we wouldn't have wasted all this time? So we're going to look at a famous guy in scripture that's going to give us a glimpse of this. You should read the story about David, the guy who wrote the first psalm that we read. You should read his story in First and Second Samuel on your own. I'm just going to give you little snapshots of it so we get a glimpse of his life. We're going to start at the beginning when he busts onto the scene in a very unassuming, unimpressive way. Saul is the current king. He's the first king of Israel, and he's not a good king. He's kind of, you know, taken and leveraged his authority and his power for himself. And God's decided this guy's not going to be king anymore. And so he says to Samuel, who's the prophet, the guy who goes and uh, does the anointing thing, the guy who anointed Saul to be king and sorts out the religious matters of the day. God whispers to Samuel and says, I want you to go to this guy's house. His name is Jesse. And he's got a bunch of kids. I'm going to show you which kid is going to be the next king of Israel. And so Samuel's a little nervous because if Saul finds this out, then he'll probably cut off Samuel's head. And so he's like low pro, under the radar, going to Jesse's house, and he's going to anoint this king. And so we pick it up here. Jesse had seven sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? They're still the youngest Come to think of it, Jesse answered. He's tending sheep. So David enters the scene as the forgotten. David enters, he enters the scope of human history on the pages of our scripture Bibles as the one who was overlooked, not thought of, disregarded as unimportant. He's out with the sheep. He's the youngest. Don't worry about him. Certainly, it's one of these seven studs, right? I mean, come on. King we're talking about. Samuel says, no, no, no. God says it's not these guys. 
Send for him, Samuel says, and we will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in from the fields where he's with sheep, the lowest form of employment in that day. And when he came, he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. The Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Now notice this. When he showed up, he showed up glowing with health. Glowing with health. Now you might not have thought of that before, but how would you show up if someone came hours to get you and you're out here just with sheep, haven't had that human contact in days, and he tells you, hey, you need to come because, uh, you know, there's this prophet guy, Samuel. Oh, Sam, Sam, I've heard of Samuel. Yeah, he's at our house. He's at our house? Yeah, yeah, he's at our house. And, um, So how do I say this? Um, Your dad got all the boys together and he was going to anoint the next king and it wasn't one of those. What? what All the boys. I got, you know, (laughs) I've been out here. Yeah, 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 I know. But so now, now it's time for you to come. So how would you show up if you were the forgotten one? If you were the son we didn't speak of? If you were the one that when the guy comes to anoint the next king, you're not even on his radar. David showed up glowing, looking healthy. He was not bitter. He was not bitter. He was not angry because he was not confused about who he was. He had been out in the fields with these sheep, meeting with God, talking with God. He knew who he was. Whether this guy anointed him and said that in the future you will be a king, that wasn't the defining thing for him. He had already settled for himself who he was. And so when he shows up, the party's been going, the brothers are there, they're bummed. Samuel says, this is the guy. David says, okay, that sounds great. Can I get some lemonade? I'm parched. I just had a long walk. It's just, it's for him, he goes back to being a shepherd, but he's already known as a shepherd and now as an appointed future king who he is. He was not dependent on his brothers or even his dad to define who he is. He had settled that between him and God. So when you are wrestling in this tension of, am I just a shepherd? Am I just somewhere out here forgotten? Am I just like everybody else? And am I uniquely shaped by God to do something particular? for this time and this place that I live. When you're in that tension, you have to ask yourself the envy question. Am I motivated? Am I doing or thinking this because I'm jealous that others are getting what I want or what I think I deserve? The envy question that will rob you from being who God designed you to be asks, am I just doing this or thinking this way because I'm jealous of others and I think I deserve something else? Or can you be confident that your heavenly father can overcome even the limitations and the short-sightedness of an earthly father? And that your identity and what God designed you to do from before you were born is established and it is not up to them. So David, he, uh, he gets anointed as king and, the, and the, the, the tough thing about an anointing is that, you know, if you've ever been, we had prayer for healing over here, we have 
elders who will like put a little bit of oil on your forehead and you feel it and it's there and you're like, oh man, I sense that God is with me. And then you walk out or it's, or it's Ash Wednesday if you're from that tradition or whatever. The thing about the anointing is it wears off. Like after that day, people remember it like the next day and they think, oh, remember, you know, you were anointed yesterday. But every day that goes by between the anointing and the crowning is a day to doubt. Did God really say that? Was Samuel just, you know, on something or had some bad sushi? Or did he get this wrong? Because this is not playing out yet. And every day that goes by between the promise of what's in you and what could be to when you feel like it's fulfilled is a day when you will wrestle and you will be tempted to feel like I'm just like everybody else and you will need to fight to live in that tension. Yes, you are just like everyone else. You were created by God to reflect him, to give glory to him, to add value in this world, and you will do it uniquely like only you can do because he has a specific plan for you. David went back to being a shepherd boy. He went back to being the youngest, the regular guy. His brothers probably liked him less now. Years go by, and his brothers are soldiers. They're strong. They're powerful, and they're out defending their land from the Philistines. The Philistine army is on this side. Picture the scene. The Israelite army is on this side. David is not a soldier. He's still young. He's still you know, not soldier material. And so his dad sends him to the front lines to to replenish the supplies of his brothers who are fighting. Imagine, you know, carrying satchels of Gatorade and Cliff Bars. And he's coming, you know, to bring these guys and, and, and keep them up and going and energized. And so he shows up and he's disappointed to find that his brothers and all the other soldiers are cowering behind rocks and shelters. And he's thinking, what's going on here? And he looks up and he sees this nine-foot-something tall Goliath. And this Goliath is just taunting him taunting all this, this entire army and saying, we don't need to do this, you know, middle-aged lineup and everyone just come and die in the middle fight. How about you just send me your best? I'll fight a mano a mano and let the chips, you know, fall where they may. Whoever wins this wins the war. By the way, I'm nine-something feet tall and pretty intimidating and so all these guys are trying to, you know, rack their brains for another alternative because no one wants to fight this guy. David shows up, and he goes, no, 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 this is not right. He is defying you and defying our God. Certainly, if God has called us into this battle, he will deliver this guy. And so he says, I will fight him. Now, you got to imagine that the people that are right next to him are like, hey, cool, that's funny, that's good. And they think, no, 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 you're just like this punk kid. Like, you glow, and you're handsome and everything. That's good, but, but you're not a warrior, uh, hence the Gatorade. You know, you're the water boy. And so David's like, no, 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 I will fight him. And so they must have seen like the fire in his eyes because they like passed him up to the lieutenant and the lieutenant even starts to believe. And you know, who's this guy? Well, he says he'll fight Goliath. Really? Okay, well. So the lieutenant becomes a believer and then he passes him up to the general. The general buys into this whole plan and takes him to the king. And King Saul buys in somehow and is gonna let David go and fight this Goliath, this giant and represent his army. And this is where we pick it up. Saul sending David out to fight Goliath. The Bible says, Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul. 
because I am not used to them. Now, I just want you to understand the magnitude of the moment. This is a life and death situation. Will you hear about David and Goliath and maybe it's become just like fictional thing in your mind. But imagine like a real, actual, brutal killing machine that wants to tear you to pieces and you're stepping up and saying, I'll be the guy. I think I've got this. And then you get passed up to the king who you've heard of and seen pictures of on billboards and on your coins. And now he looks at you and has hope in you. And he says, hey, put this on. This is mine. I want you to have it. This will protect you. This is what soldiers wear. You're going to need this in this battle. Imagine having the strength having the courage, having the confidence in who you are to say, I cannot wear these. I'm not used to them. To the king, before you're about to walk out and face Goliath and what they all think is probably certain death. And the Bible says, so he took them off. And he took his staff. Notice this, verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the stream. He didn't delegate that task. He went and picked the five stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd bag, and with his sling in hand, in his hand, approached the Philistine. Do you believe that God has given you what you need for what he calls you to do. Because there will be a time when he whispers something to you, when he presents an opportunity, when there's something that you just have burning in you that you know you need to do. And it's going to be a risk, and it's going to be something you have to step out in faith to do. And people are going to think you're a little bit weird or something because you're going to go out and you're going to do this thing. And immediately when you make that decision and you step out in faith, you will have others that perhaps are not risking and stepping out and doing what they feel convicted about and convinced about. But they are going to have lots of opinions about what it should look like for you to do your thing. And they're going to try to put things on you to make themselves more comfortable. And it's not about what makes you be who God made you to be in this moment. It's about what they see, what they think is needed, what they think this moment calls for. But you're the one following the conviction. You're the one listening to your God. And will you believe that you're also the one that he has been preparing out in the fields with the sheep, killing lions and bears, practicing with a slingshot, And that all those years have not been wasted. They have been preparation for such a time as this. And it will only overwhelm you and mess everything up if you try to put on what other people say you should be when God has called you to this. David used his staff, his slingshot, the things that were in his hand. This is not my first book. I tried to write a book uh, a number of years ago. It never got off my hard drive because I sat down with this gracious leader who had the courage to tell me the truth, and I showed it to him, and he read it, and he went through it, and he circled a chapter, and he wrote, this sounds like Rick Warren. Next section. 
this sounds like John Eldridge. Next session. <laughs> this sounds like somebody else. And he went through this manuscript, and he kept telling me how I was talking and trying to be like everybody else. And then he looked at me, and he goes, what do you sound like? And I scrapped the whole thing, and I realized that if I feel like I'm supposed to do something and have something to offer or give back in this world, I have to trust that God has put it in me to do. And I have to trust that he's prepared me through my own story, through my own journey, through my own weakness and failures and brokenness and the crap from the past, the good, the bad, and the ugly, that somehow he's going to use what's in my hands for what he's inviting me to do. And there will become a time, if there hasn't already, when he whispers to you and he invites you in to take on some giant or some opportunity. And there will be people who try to come and tell you how it should look and how you should dress, and how this should play out. But they're just hedging their own bets because they are not chasing after God with conviction like you. And you must choose to trust that the one who is calling you has also prepared you. And when you're in that moment, you need to continually ask yourself the imposter question. The imposter question is, am I trying to look like someone else? or trying to please someone else by looking a certain way? Am I trying to look like someone else, sound like someone else, be successful like someone else? Or am I trying to please someone else by looking a certain way? Time goes by. David continues to be true to himself. He continues to be authentic and to pursue the life that he feels like that God has for him. But he's still not king. Years go by, and God blesses him and gives him favor, and there's great things and opportunities, and yet at the same time, Saul is still king, and now Saul hates this little dude, and he wants to kill him, and he tries to kill him. He pursues him for a long time, trying to end him. He smells like this thing that maybe, maybe, maybe people think that this is going to be the next king. I will not have that. I'm going to snuff this dude out. And so he chases him through the desert and all over the place trying to end his life. And David ends up finding himself in a cave, hiding out with a few of his, a few of his buddies. They are hiding in this cave, and he must be. You, I mean, if it were me, I would be thinking, really, God? Really, I've been trying to follow you? What, what happened to this anointing thing? How long is this going to play out? I'm never going to be king if the king kills me. This doesn't, it can't work that way. I'm miserable. I was better off with the sheep. Now I'm like being pursued every day with a sword. What, what, what? He finds himself in the cave. And on this particular day, Saul, the king, and all his soldiers, and on their horses, they're pursuing David, and they come up to a place, and they pause, and they take a little rest, and Saul says, I've got to go to the bathroom. And so Saul gets off his horse, and he walks, and he looks, and he goes, oh, there's a cave. This might take a while. So I'm going to go in here, and it's, there's like a covering, and so maybe the odor isn't going to get to my you know, friends on their host, horses, and so I'm going I'm to do everybody a favor. I'm going to go in the cave. I'm going to do my business. I'm going to come back out. He doesn't realize that David and his posse are in the same cave. They're back in the shadows when they hear the horses coming. Saul, the king, the one who's pursuing David, trying to kill him, walks into the same cave takes off his stuff, sword, knife, dagger, cloak, everything, throws it down, digs himself a little hole, does what he does, squats down. 
Talk about the most vulnerable position you can be in. And there's David. And I wonder if the thought crosses his mind, I'm going to seize my divine moment. I am the anointed one. He doesn't deserve to be king anymore. He's totally rebelled against God and he's trying to kill me. Forget this. This is the time. This is, the mo- this is what I've been waiting for. And he has him within arm's length and his, and his buddies are all there too. He doesn't even have to be the one to do it. He could just pass the knife down to somebody else. And his buddies are the ones telling him, like elbowing him, saying, hey dude, let's do this thing. When are you going to get another shot like this? David, soldiers, Saul, the current king trying to kill him, squatting down in front of him. Let's just end this thing. And David says, no, don't do it. Put your sword away. David just reaches down, cuts a little piece of his tunic off. So Saul grabs his tunic and his stuff and he walks back out. David comes to the edge of the cave and he shouts down at Saul. Hey, remember me? This day, he says, you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. You were right there. If I wanted to, I could have. Some urged me to kill you. I'm not going to mention any names, fellas, but some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay a hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. I will not circumvent God's process just because I have the opportunity. I will not take a shortcut if I know it's unhealthy. I will not break God's law just to speed up my future. I will not show a lack of trust that God has things under control just because I'm uncomfortable with the process. I won't kill so that I can benefit. There will be opportunities and there will be moments when you will be asked and invited to compromise who you are under the guise of becoming who you are or who you think you should be. Don't don't break God's law to speed up something that you think you deserve for your future. Don't say, oh, this is the moment where if I just take matters into my own hands, I can make this happen. Ambition, drive, all that stuff is great, and that's one thing. But to do what you know is wrong, to get to an outcome that you think that you deserve, is something else. In these situations, you ask yourself the the exception question. Am I living like I am an exception to the rule? Am I living like the rules maybe don't apply to me the same way? Like I won't get caught. Like I deserve this. Like I'm God's anointed anyway. He said this about me back here. It's just a matter of time. I'm just kind of speeding it up a little bit. I've waited long enough. God's plan is too slow. David remembered who he was. He persevered when he was being chased because he knew that God had promised this, that God had wired him uniquely and that his time would come. Now, he, we see that. We see that. Good job, David. He did this. He did it this way. He was patient. He, did, he understood that he was unique, that he was knit together in his, in his mother's womb, that he was fearfully and wonderfully made. But as time went by and he became the king, he lost sight of the other side of the tension. 
He saw that he was king, that he had authority and power. He forgot that he's just like everybody else, subject to God's authority, that he was not an exception to the rule. And he lost track and he became very vulnerable. After he had been king for some time, the Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 11, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. But David remained in Jerusalem. So you have the king, and when kings go out to war, this is the time he stays back. He thinks, no, 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 no I'm good. I, put, I paid my dues. I put in my time. Or, you know, this is the, I'm just going to hang back. And in doing so, he unknowingly made himself very, very vulnerable to something that would tarnish his legacy. One night, he's up on his roof deck, and he looks down, and there's a beautiful woman taking a bath. And her name happens to be Bathsheba. And she probably knew what she was doing. She knows where the king lives, and she knows it's night, and what happened, you know. But he calls for her. She comes up. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. And to make matters worse, he goes and he, tries, he sends someone to find her husband. He comes back. He tries to get her husband. Hey, hey, who just wanted you to come home and have a little weekend with your wife? You know, you're working hard out there. You know, take a load off and just let's just get, get, get this, you know, spend some time, some quality time. Thinking that maybe if he slept with her, she would, you know, be pregnant and he would think it was his kid. Maybe he wouldn't notice the royal resemblance, his, his glow and his handsomeness. But the guy wouldn't sleep with his wife. He wouldn't even go in the house. He slept outside the door. He slept outside the door. And he said, how can I do this when my people, my soldiers are out there dying? And David's like, for the love, a soldier with integrity, what do I got to do? And so he sends him out back to the front lines of the battlefield. So he's intentionally in harm's way and he dies. Then he brings Bathsheba in to be his wife. You can read the whole story. The whole story of David is fascinating and it's great. But here's the thing. When David forgot that there is a tension, that yes, 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 God has a unique plan and a purpose for his life. Yes, he is completely Unique, and God has designed him distinctly. Yes, there was an anointing, and it came true. Certainly, God's hand of blessing is on him. Yes, and he's just like everybody else. A creation of this God. Under the authority of this God. Under the authority of the way that God set up our relationships and our marriages and things like that. He's just like, he's not outside of temptation. He is not outside of authority. And when he forgot that, he marred his legacy in that moment. He didn't ask the enticement question, which is where am I vulnerable to enticement? When things are going well, and I'm not back here, and I'm not in this terrible situation being chased for my life, and I'm here, and, and things are on the up and up, do I ask myself, where am I being enticed? If I feel like this is me and, I, and, I'm, and things are going well, where am I vulnerable to forfeit the legacy that I want? What could take me down and hurt my legacy? Where do I feel entitlement creeping in and enticing me to compromise? Now, if you just took a snapshot of David's whole story and his journey, and you just saw that time, that season with Bathsheba, you would think that, you know, this guy wasn't the greatest guy. But as Jack Hayford told me one time, God is more interested in your direction than he is in your perfection. 
And David consistently made decisions to go in the direction of his God. On the whole of his life, he came back time and time again and repented and said, God, I want my life to honor you. I want my legacy to be one that I am proud of, that brings glory to you. You have made me king. I'm going to use that for your good. Forgive me for how I screwed this whole thing up. I know that if we asked, if we talked about it, there would be pieces of your story, of your legacy, of your life, that if we just took that snapshot, you would not be proud of that. And yet there's hope because David is known not for his mistake, but for who he was. Years and years later, he's remembered as a man after God's own heart. Look at this from Acts 13. After removing Saul, God made David king. God testified concerning him. This is God saying, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Verses later, the Bible says that, God, that David served God's purposes in his generation and then he died. On his tombstone is serve God's purposes, man after God's own heart. Don't let failure here define future out there. And live in the tension that we are all the same on one hand, created by God, children of God, designed to bring him glory, each bearing a piece of his image, and that that is going to be played out uniquely through each one of us. That none of us have the same gifting, none of us have the same experience, and he has in mind to use you in this world unlike he has used anyone else. Only you can be you, and he has something for you, and he's going to invite you into it. And will you have the courage to trust him that he has uniquely prepared you, and he will uniquely use you? We wanted to finish this service a little bit different than previously. We wanted to give you an extra little bit of time here because on the back of your outline, I put a tombstone. Yes, it looks a little bit like clip art, but you get the idea. I wanted to give you a moment as you reflect. Put your name at the top of that tombstone. Leave, hopefully leave the death date question marks because we don't know when that's going to be. But then take this moment and write in that box what you want your legacy to be. What do you believe God has uniquely designed you to do? How do you want to live these days going forward so that you can be who he made you to be? And then what does that look like tomorrow? The band's going to play and we're just going to give you a few moments. Let me just pray for you for it right now. God, I pray that you would speak. I pray that you would encourage. I pray that you would empower. I pray that you would give us clarity as we look at what are our convictions? Where are you whispering to us? What have you promised us? Where have we seen you at work? Where are you drawing us into? How have you made us distinct and different from others? How can we live that out in a way that honors you? Give us more clarity on that in our own hearts and souls right now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So just take this moment, write that in, and the band will lead us from there.